HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Uptown Beer Society, a craft beer gang dedicated to making memorable collaborations with New York City brands and breweries owned by people of color. Learn more on Instagram at Uptown Beer Society. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food. My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X. Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds. What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos, because they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Although, the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times, it's pretty hype. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, welcome to the Feed Feed, where we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm to discuss everything from navigating social media, building, engaging with, and growing a community, and producing content that resonates with young and old. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of the Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Today, we have food writer, editor, and author of the new cookbook, Help Yourself, Lindsay Maitland-Hunt. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and you have a really, really, really um, incredible career in food media. Um, from everywhere of like on staff at Real Simple, to an editor at BuzzFeed, to your first book, Healthy-ish. What was kind of like the intro to, how did you get into food and writing about food? So I got into food because it was sort of the ethos of my family was eating delicious food as much as possible all the time, get into the kitchen. It was the playground. My mom had been a caterer when she was younger. And so I was raised being encouraged to just do whatever I felt like in the kitchen and so that led me to starting a baked goods company during the summers when I was in high school. And I sold my little wares at a farmer's market stand in Jackson, Wyoming. So it was like cookies, coffee cake, brownies, all sugar all the time. And yes. I had wanted, yeah, it was good. I had wanted to go to culinary school um, straight after high school, but my mom was like, you know, you should go to college, do that, see how you feel after. During college, I was seeking out everything I could find up in New Hampshire where I had gone to school, driving long distances to eat delicious things, check out the farms and the farmer's market up there. And so when I moved to New York right after graduating from college, I started bartending at a restaurant in Tribeca and signed up to go to the French Culinary Institute. And it all began there. Amazing. And then what was that kind of break in to media like and how was it? How was your experience in terms of kind of building yourself up at a publication like Real Simple? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, at 
culinary school, I had, like I said, I had always been more into baking. Um, and I just, mm -hmm. I really decided on the culinary arts track because it seemed more versatile and I'm so glad I did that. And I, I arrived and there were so many people who had worked as line cooks or who were really, really passionate about restaurant, starting a restaurant. They'd had so much experience and I tried to do a stage. I did one day trying out at Danielle and it completely oh my God. freaked me out. It was amazing. I'm, I'm so glad I did it, but it totally freaked me out. I do not have the disposition to work in a professional kitchen. I am a morning person. So I pretty quickly realized that working in a restaurant wasn't going to be the path for me after culinary school. I mean, in retrospect, sometimes I think that would have been worth my putting in the time because I think that you do gain so many um, important skills, just speed, being able to handle pressure, things like that, that come out of working at a restaurant in addition to you know, getting the cooking experience and defining your palate. But I decided to go work at a specialty food shop in Brooklyn while I was figuring it out, which is Brooklyn Larder. I think it's still there. Yes, and the best. It's so good. And I am obsessed with cheese. I was the co-founder of the Cheese Club in high school. So selling cheese is a dream come true. And while I was working there, I was introduced to a woman named Sarah Copeland, who's written three cookbooks. She's written the Newlywed Cookbook. She's written mm -hmm. Feast and most recently, Every Day is Saturday. And I was her intern working for her while she was developing the Newlywed Cookbook. And I just, I'd never, even though I'd always looked at my mom's copies of Gourmet, I loved cookbooks. I loved writing about food and I loved the art of assembling something on a plate. It sounds kind of silly, but I hadn't thought about the fact that that was a job. Like you could write and take photos of food and style the food. And I had been a studio art major in college. So it felt like everything was really coming together when I was working for her. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. This is a dream. And I can be in this sort of lower stress cooking environment. There's the writing component. I've always wanted to be a writer. And there's obviously also the artistic element. So she taught me how to test and develop recipes. It's through her I learned about food styling. And I met so many people through that experience and ended up as a freelance recipe tester in Real Simple's Test Kitchen. And so from there, Sarah had given me the skill set to be able to test recipes in that type of traditional test kitchen way. Um, and... Through that, I ended up working for Marcus Samuelson, who at the time had just started his website producing editorial content. Um, and I was a total baby. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, you know, I he was so encouraging of me. And he just said, like, make sure you're reading all the food news. Make sure you're getting a diverse perspective. Um, you know, edit the people who are contributing to the site. Write your own stuff. I got to help out with things that he was writing as well. He had such an amazing team and he started Food Republic at that time. Um, and it was such an amazing experience. I mean, he really greenlit so many different types of writing and recipe development and taking photos and meeting so many people. But the reality was like I was 23 and yeah. I wanted to get a more traditional sort of training experience and so I ended up applying for the food editorial assistant job at Real Simple. And that is how I ended up working there and was there for three years and worked my way into the test kitchen, um, worked my way up from testing recipes to actually developing them. And I also did food market work there and some writing as well. Incredible. And like that is the perfect segue to the conversation around like, I love when food writers have like a career that's divided between print and digital. Um, and obviously you went from then real simple to Buzzfeed. What was, what was the experience like from making that switch and, and do you have a preference between print or digital? Ooh, that's a great question. So first of all, no, I wouldn't say I have a preference between print or digital. And I feel like even now, you know, six years after leaving Real Simple, I just don't think there's that much of a divide. There's so many amazing things that are happening on the internet. It's an equalizing space. Um, and even more so, I feel like such amazing journalism and writing is happening on the internet first. 
of course, like it was really great to work in print and the, the attention to detail and excellence and the way we were pushed to really make sure that our recipes, this is, I'm talking about real simple, like worked in a wide swath of kitchens fundamentally defined the way I think about developing recipes. Like I think I'm really a recipe developer first and maybe a cook second, which isn't the sexiest or most exciting thing to say, but I, I loved thinking about the recipe being a set of instructions that ended up in households all across the country and thinking about making sure that it worked for the reader. And even if something was really delicious, if it was going to take 20 different dishes, then maybe it wasn't worth printing in the magazine. Yeah. And so leaving real simple, I really took that service focused way of developing recipes. And I was freelance for a year, which is really exciting way to jump in headfirst to the waters, developing all over the place, getting to spend time in various test kitchens. And then when the opportunity came up at BuzzFeed, I leapt at it because the woman who hired me, Emily Fleischiger, who's now at the New York Times, she was like, it's the Wild West. You can do what you want. And I had learned about myself at that point that what I really thrive on is jumping in to a really in-depth project that I can really wrap my head around for long periods of time. Correct. I could not agree more. That's like, there. that is truly, I think that's such a wonderful point to talk about like why the the half-life of a I think I feel like a good food writer food editor in the industry is typically on the shorter side it's because of the fact that like that is the number one draw to the work yeah absolutely and it's you know and you asked about print and digital and I think one of the cool things about the internet and you know I've been self-employed for four years now And what I think the internet allows for is becoming really granular about a subject that you're passionate about. And the fact that there is not really a barrier to entry in that, in that way. Whereas I think at Buzzfeed, you know, what, what, what I came in thinking I would be doing being in that environment at the time that it was well-established, but still morphing every day and changing and growing. I ended up writing the, famous or you could say infamous BuzzFeed listicles. And that was actually a great training. You know, I think like having to write really fast, these sort of pithy descriptions of recipes that we were curating and um, also developing, but in a way that I wasn't familiar with before, you know, thinking about, okay, what's going to be really clickable? What is this audience that as far as Venn diagrams go at that point, maybe it wasn't having a ton of overlap with Real Simple. I couldn't speak to that now, but I am really glad that I had the experience of having to completely put on a new hat in terms of the way I was thinking about developing recipes and creating content. And while I was there, I did end up having the opportunity to do this dream project of developing the ultimate chocolate chip cookie, which was something that was really suited to the internet because there were videos for it. We could do step-by-step this really luxurious long spread of every single photograph or every single step of making the recipe. That's something that I think is really suited to the internet. And so, yeah, I, I loved that experience and it created a unique blend in me, I think, of always thinking about the reader first, but understanding that you want to get it across in both a fun way and a way that's intelligible to a broad group of people rather than um, maybe going in to a super, super granular way of describing food. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, One of my favorite things that you just said was that you were a recipe developer first and a cook second. Um, and I think I do think that on a on a separate note that uh, as a whole I feel like there's just like this lack of a desire for people to really push that term I don't know maybe it's just not flashy enough compared to like a lot of the other terms but I think it's so important that like the concept of recipe development is it's a true like science precise like chemistry with pipettes art um what has been kind of like your uh kind of biggest challenges or learnings or advice that you give to other people when it comes to becoming a better recipe developer 
Oh yeah. This is something I'm so passionate about. Um, yeah. And I wish I were actually more science minded speaking of, but what I would say is that, you know, I would never say I'm a chef and even saying cook, you know, it's something I do. But when I think about what a recipe developer does, it's creating a set of instructions that can work for a wide variety of people. So I often liken it to the Ikea instructions that come with a piece yes. of furniture that you order. You know, so like, I mean, to be honest, actually, I'm not great at assembling Ikea furniture, but I <laughs> I see many people having the furniture work for them. So what I think is a great, why it's a great analogy is that it works for a variety of people. You know, they do it in the most understandable way so that you can get from the thing that you saw either in the store or online, and then you can use these instructions to get to the same thing. Like what if you went through those instructions and then the drawer pulls were in the wrong place or it looks nothing like it, or it didn't stick together. And for me, that's what you're thinking about when you're creating a recipe is like, you have this thing on the plate, you see the photo, how do you get someone from that all the way to having the same thing in their kitchen? And so I feel pretty obsessed with personally keeping the ingredient list short. I don't think that's a requirement for everyone. I think there's so much room for different types of recipes, but for me, that's the thing that I am really passionate about. Not too many pots and pans. Yeah. I mean, I think I love project cooking and I think it's, you know, there's so many different ways. There's a time and a place. Yeah. There's a time and a place. My specialty. And again, because I think really I learned to cook through becoming a recipe developer. I'm thinking about short ingredient lists, not too many pots and pans, and also sort of leaving maybe more discursive approaches to describing cooking to a head note or to a sidebar or things like that. Um, I like having things tight and on one page to make the person who's in the kitchen feel less stressed. So that's a lot of what I'm thinking about consistent language. I think it's great when people create their own language for how they're going to talk about cooking a recipe, but making sure that it's consistent thinking about now having written two cookbooks that over the course of the cookbook that you understand how to get to the same results in the same way over and over again, because that's something that then someone can take off the page. Because when you use the same terms and they're cooking over and over again, then that is something that ends up liberating cooking from the page to off the cuff in the kitchen later. Yeah. Um, I think it's a perfect segue to get into your two cookbooks, uh, starting with your first one, Healthy-ish. What was that process like? I remember, I mean, I distinctly remember when it came out because it was before Bon App obviously had their site. Um, and it was just like from the cover to everything about it was really like the first of its kind in this new realm of health, but not like restrictive, not uh, prescriptive, just like focusing on really good food and like that kind of connection between what you're eating and your body. So what was kind of the thought process behind pitching that book, writing that book and and seeing it come to life? Well, thank you, first of all. so healthy-ish, yeah. So the I sold it before the Bone App site started, but they actually launched because selling a book to the book being on the shelves is such a long process in the sort of window of my selling it to when it came out. Connie now started the website healthy-ish. Um, and there's obviously so much overlap there and great minds think alike. Um, but what I was thinking is, you know, something that's true for both healthy-ish and help yourself is like, I'm not a natural healthy eater. (laughs) Like I've mentioned cheese and cookies already during this recording. Like if I could live off cheese and cookies, I would. And so healthy-ish was my way of getting down on paper and into this book, how I actually get myself to eat in a balanced way. Like to me, that was an encapsulation of at that point, how I actually ate. And like I said, you know, I learned how to cook through becoming a recipe developer. And so beyond just having a, you know, what I say, good for you, but not too good for you. That's what healthy-ish is about. It's also about not too many pots and pans, you know, ingredients that most people can 
buy at a grocery store in the US, whatever that means, um, and not too long of an ingredient list. So making sure that I was eating vegetables, but I was enjoying doing it and making sure that I was eating treats that I really loved, but that I wasn't going too overboard with sugar because, you know, that for me makes me not feel that great. Yeah. And what was the, what was the process like from doing an entire book versus obviously like the amount of work that goes into whether that be a, a, a story for real simple or a package for, for Buzzfeed, like what was it like now developing uh, how many recipes were in healthy-ish? I think it was 131. 131. Yeah. What was it like? Oh my gosh. It annihilated me to be honest. And it's funny <laughs> because <laughs> doing, then writing help yourself, I was like, my God, healthy-ish was so easy, but you know, you don't know what, what you don't know. And I was really excited. Like I said, like I function better on long-term projects that I can sort of hole up. I'm natural introvert who wants to be working alone on long-term things. Um, and so, and also just sort of establishing what my approach was over a large group of recipes, really fun. That being said, like I felt really underprepared and I've gotten a little bit better, but I tend to be a procrastinator and I had a lot of anxiety about doing it right. And just managing that amount of work on my own when up until that point, I had basically been in these really supportive media environments. Um, yeah, it was really, really difficult. And I, you know, decided to spend a portion of my advance hiring interns who helped me with testing the recipe because I was so grateful to Sarah Copeland for giving me that opportunity to learn in that way. So I wanted to do the same thing. And I had two lovely women who helped me out over the course of the book. And that was wonderful. And, you know, doing the shoot was so wonderful to be with other people. But I would say, like, I did not expect how difficult managing that amount of work in one sort of package would be yeah just to be totally honest you know what i mean no, like i listen, feel like it's like i i have the exact same experience it's a lot people, people yeah people think it's like this and i guess for like it's definitely there's this fantasy around to create especially with the idea of the writer for like a, like let's say you're doing a novel you think of, of these people in the woods like writing at leisure for a few years, coming out with the masterpiece. Um, and that's just not the case with a cookbook when all of a sudden every page in that book is also reflective of physical labor and time and energy and ideation and then meticulous testing. It's, it's a beast. And then it's your baby. So it's like, it, every, <laughs> like every single thing has to be perfect. Yeah, it's so true. And I think I had a goal of developing and testing the recipes the same way that I would have done when I was at in a test kitchen, wherever that was. And I'm really glad I did that because I think it does mean that the recipes work for most people, you know, like you can't yeah. promise a foolproof recipe. Um, but I think that that ended up paying off. I I'm just a procrastinator is the reality. Like I think it's, yes. you know, it's difficult with creative work and I, I, it's a value of mine to speak honestly about how hard this work can often be. And I was really lucky to have a supportive publisher and people who helped me out on the book. And I'm so grateful to all of them um, because I don't even know how I could have done it without really without the time and the luxury of doing it the way I did. Yeah. And now I think this is the, the, the greatest part is we've just talked about your career and I think it all kind of plays a role in this latest book, um, Help Yourself, A Guide to Gut Health for people who love delicious food. Um, I guess what was kind of like this experience throughout your career um, in how it relates to your health? Yeah, so... As I talk about in the introduction of the book, I started accumulating health issues. You know, even when I was at Real Simple, I started getting all sorts of symptoms, you know, and I say symptoms because I kept going to doctors, but was never getting a diagnosis that sort of linked all of these things together. So I think even in August 2013 was when 
these things started happening. And I know it sounds silly, but I think this is a really popular perception for people is that there's a calories in equals calories out philosophy. So you hear things like, well, you can eat whatever you want as long as you're exercising enough to burn it off. And so, you know, I thought on my diet, my preferred diet of cheese and cookies, that as long as I was, yeah, exactly. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? As long as I was, you know, exercising enough each week, as long as I was going to soul cycle five times a week or whatever, then that was fine, except for that it wasn't obviously. And, you know, the symptoms I was accumulating are everything from migraines to joint pain to itching, you know, depression, anxiety in ways I hadn't really ever experienced before. Um, And, you know, heartburn, all these types of things. And every doctor would sort of say, well, take, take this prescription or take that prescription. And I, and I would say to them, like, I feel like these things are linked. I knew they were linked. I was feeling them linked in my body. Like I was the embodiment of these symptoms being related. And, you know, meanwhile, I wasn't great at managing my stress. I pushed myself in ways that weren't sustainable. I think, like I said, writing healthy-ish, I didn't know how to manage the workload and manage my stress. And so while I was working on healthy-ish was when everything really came to a head. I just barely did anything other than work on that book. By the time I had gotten to the shoot, I, you know, was on the shoot, but I couldn't really bend my fingers or toes. They hurt so badly. I had hives, I had itching, you know, this, this stuff was accumulating. And yet every time I went to the doctor, I was told, Either I, you know, I was reading sort of crazy things or there was no connection or like just trust the medication. So basically hit um, a point that seemed like life was untenable in New York. I just I couldn't handle it. I was going to go home to my parents in Wyoming for a while. Ended up seeing a functional medicine doctor here. So he's someone who has an MD, but he also is trained in functional medicine and he you know, had me, I filled out all these forms, charted all my symptoms when they started, blah, blah, blah. And he sat down with me and he was like, this is really normal. Like I can help you. This is a problem that's rooted in your gut. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> You're like, I don't know. I mean, I just, I didn't know about gut health and, you know, we're talking 2017. So, you know, it's actually only three and a half years ago, but like I said, I mean, there was this really sort of Food and how we felt wasn't now. I think it's much more mainstream and I'm really grateful to that. And I hope that help yourself can be an answer for people who recognize that connection. But I didn't know that connection. And you know what? I don't think I wanted to know that connection. And so he said, you know, your gut, like the most viable way to treat the gut is through diet. And his suggestion was that I cut out dairy, eggs, and gluten. And so I did that. And um, it sucked for me personally, no, no shade to anyone who doesn't want to eat those foods, but I didn't feel any better. And that really knocked me out. I was dealing that by then with a diagnosis of PCOS, um, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and I, in addition to, you know, thyroid issues, taking all these types of things, antihistamines, heartburn medication. Like it was getting up to such a crazy number of pills and I was feeling worse and worse. And so at that point is when I just decided, you know what, I'm going to buy some books about the gut that are by the scientists who are researching this. And that is when everything changed. And this is three and a half years ago, all the way up till maybe two and a half years ago when I started to think, you know what, I'm just going to create a way of eating that works for me that takes this science into account and that I'll see if I feel better. If I follow what the scientists say, let's see what works. And that wasn't focusing on cutting things out. That was actually about adding things in because what the science showed was that eating things that are beneficial microbes like, which at its core is basically dietary fiber, um, which comes from plants if you eat those things, you're feeding the good microbes and then they will stop maybe eating the gut lining or letting sort of toxins get through the gut lining or preferencing harmful microbes. And 
I am telling you, like it wasn't overnight, but within a matter of weeks, I was feeling back to myself. And all of this was happening, by the way, before even Healthy-ish came out, which is what's so insane about it. (laughs) Yeah, oh, that's amazing. I mean, so I want to dive in to so many different aspects of that, um, but first we're gonna take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Uptown Beer Society. They're a craft beer gang dedicated to making memorable collaborations with New York City brands and breweries owned by people of color. Their Bronx Culture Series featured three beers made in collaboration with Gun Hill Brewery, inspired by the Bronx and Latinx culture. Uptown Beer Society works with underrepresented brewers and beer bar owners to highlight and celebrate cultural gems that make New York City so special. Learn more about their unique beers and where to find them when you follow them on Instagram at Uptown Beer Society. The first thing I want to talk about it is the concept of that you weren't restricting your diet, but you were adding things in. What was that kind of journey like and what are kind of what were the things that you started really like putting into your diet yeah so like I said a lot of and you'll see this in lay media media I think it's pretty common if you google like what deeper gut health you'll see or related to autoimmune or you know sort of anti-inflammatory diet is to cut out gluten dairy and eggs yeah and I don't want to say you know something I want to be really careful about is like This is not a one-size-fits-all approach in that some people might have success that way. Unfortunately, I did find out that I am allergic to gluten. Um, Mm. But I am very careful about saying, like, cutting out gluten is not something that everyone needs to do. It's something that people who have an allergy of celiac need to do to feel better. But there is no inherent problem with eating foods that have gluten in it, which I, I think is super important to get across. Um, because it has ended up being this sort of, um, maligned ingredient for a lot of people. And then the people who are annoyed that gluten has been maligned are, there's been a sort of, um, I don't know, complicated, yeah, it's become issues happening around gluten, which is almost like it's, it's like, it's becoming politicized. It, uh, yeah. It and it's be. so funny because like I, you know, even in novels I've been reading, like there's things like, oh, and then the annoying person who doesn't want to eat gluten. And I'm like, God, I hate being that annoying person, but I also am pretty happy not feeling sick anymore. All that to say, that is my personal story. However, that is not unequivocally true for people who want to achieve gut health. What I really found out is that it's about whole plant foods. Um, mm-hmm. And like I said, dietary fiber is the thing specifically fermentable dietary fiber that can be digested by our beneficial microbes. But the whole plant food is basically the highest possibility that those substances that beneficial microbes feed off of, that they make it to the large intestine where the gut microbiota lives. And so adding in those foods is the most important thing because then those beneficial microbes have a lot to eat because they feed off of whole plant food, like I said, but it has to be a variety. So there was a study by the American Gut Project, and they found that over 30 different types of plant foods in a week correlates with positive health. Um, And, you know, you can't necessarily say like, good, like if good gut health is hard to measure, because everyone has a very different gut microbiota, which is a community of microbes that lives in your gut, but you can look at how it translates to the health of the human. And so it's vegetables, of course, you know, vegetables are so important, but it's also nuts and seeds, beans and legumes, fruit, like there's so many different ways, whole grains of getting dietary plant fiber into your diet. So I was literally just focused on making sure that at every single meal, I was eating a variety of these different foods and adding those in. And sure enough, that is what changed my health for the better. Incredible. And then how did that then kind of inspire this book? And what was that process like in terms of not only learning about your own gut health, but 
kind of educating yourself and being able to then put it on a page of how someone can really make a difference in their diet. Yeah. So what, what happened is that I looked um, for books that would tell me what to do. Like I said, I bought books written by scientists, but those, you know, one of them called The Good Gut by Justin and Erica Sonnenberg, who are married researchers who work out of Stanford. That book had some recipes in the back um, that were developed by a blogger based on what they recommend. But there wasn't a usable cookbook that that really looked like a cookbook, like a regular cookbook, if you know what I mean. Like it wasn't yeah. something I really wanted was when you look at this book, you're not immediately thinking like, oh my God, that's going to be a health book. That's going to be super restrictive. Of course, like it has the word health on the cover. But what I was looking for was a book that could explain to me like, what is the gut? Why does it matter? And how do I do this? And then give me some recipes that would taste really great without making me feel frankly, like really depressed because first of all, I think this is true for so many people. When you're having this many health issues, you feel overwhelmed. Like I was spending so much money on prescriptions and doctors. I was spending all my time on that, spending my money on therapy because I was having to deal with the fact that I was so depressed about this, the way this <laughs> my life was feeling. Um, and also like the gut and the brain are totally connected and they have a bi-directional communication that that involves neurotransmitters leaving the gut and going to the brain and you know serotonin is embedded in the gut wall so there is a mental health connection to our gut and so it's completely plausible that like my depression and anxiety getting worse was derived from me not eating in a way that was benefiting my health promoting gut microbes so basically like even just saying what i just said there was no book that I could look at and be like, oh my God, what is this and what do I do? And honestly, like I had just, I was, Healthy hadn't even come out. I was like so burnt out, like I said, but I was like, I really wish this book were out there. And I feel like there's other people who feel like I do who would need this book. And there were so many books that were out there, but like they were either promoting those really restrictive ways of eating um, or they weren't coming from a traditional recipe developer background. So the recipes weren't necessarily like really delicious or usable, or um, they were tucked into the back of a doctor or a scientist book. And those recipes yeah. were really looking at numbers, but not thinking about flavor. Like I mentioned in the book, this one, like sweet potato, cinnamon, ground beef scramble. Yeah. I just know. <laughs> yeah. I just can't eat that, you know? And so that is where the idea for the book came is like, I am finding this to be so successful and I wish there were this book out there. So like, why don't I try and make it? Yeah. And what was that like as you were developing these recipes? How much of this was just kind of like, because I, I do believe, and this is kind of the, one of the big conversations that I've had in terms of like the process of my book is, a huge part of it was the kind of um, ability to use these, use my recipes to entertain around the concept of Shabbat. And not in a religious sense, but in a way of gathering friends and family on Friday night. And one of like the best parts about the process was that I was, I would test the recipes to coordinate with Shabbat so people could I could see what it was like in terms of actually entertaining a group of 10 people and making these recipes. What was this process like as you're going through this personal um, kind of journey to understand your own gut health? How many of these recipes were kind of a result of the way you started cooking for yourself versus understanding gut health and then developing recipes based on it? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well, I love how you did that. And I I think that must have been so much work at the end of every week. I can't it was imagine. so hard, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot of life things were happening while I was working on this book. So um, it was also sort of a mess, but maybe that's just how I, that's how I work. I'm not fully sure. But what happened is that I, you know, in, when you sell a book, a cookbook, as you know, and your listeners probably know from the podcast you've been doing is like, you have to present this document that proves that there is not just a market for the book, but like the whole sort of recipe list is going to be in there. Yeah. And I tend to have like a pretty methodical way of coming up with 
what is going to be in the table of contents of the recipes in the book and the other elements. And so I was really thinking about like the different types of meals, the different types of, you know, making sure I had egg recipes, making sure I had meat recipes, making sure fish and seafood, um, having done healthy-ish, I wish I had, I learned a lot from that. I wish I had done certain things differently. So I incorporated that. Like I knew I wanted to have some entertaining menus included in the book because it was so important to me that people understood like you can have all these people over. And if you don't want them to know that you're eating in a way that's benefiting your gut health, like they'll just look at the food and be like, this tastes and looks delicious. So I was going about that in this sort of methodical way, making sure that you're hitting different types of recipes, different meals of the day, um, different flavor combinations, those sorts of things. Um, and so I sold the book with a recipe list that's pretty similar to this. And that all came out of having done this research before I even sold the book. Like, what does it mean to eat for gut health? You know, what is viable in terms of what will, you know, in theory, based on the science, have a beneficial effect on your health? Then I sold the book and it was a whole other experience. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which is to say, so I had been living in Berlin, which is my favorite place on the planet. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll be there and I will write this book there. And I got there thinking like, they have food, we have food, it's not going to be a problem. I'll develop the recipes, etc. No. <laughs> like I had written Health Asia in New York where there's Fresh Direct, you can get your gro groceries yes. delivered to your door. That's not the same thing in Berlin. I was like biking around trying to find things. They eat really seasonally there, which is such an amazing aspect of European grocery stores. But like but I had the, a full it's on the antithesis of recipe development. Completely. And like I had a full on breakdown about Brussels sprouts, um, <laughs> <laughs> crying in the store, texting everyone I know, being like, have you seen Brussels sprouts? It was August. It became pretty clear that I was not going to hit my deadline, which by the way, I didn't in the end anyway, but I wasn't going to hit my deadline um, living there still. So I thought like, I'll come back. I'll live with my parents. I'll write this book, living with them, being in the US where I can get ingredients for this like US book. And um, I'll do that. And it was actually like, I wouldn't have planned it necessarily. But I'm so glad that I did it that way in the end. Because I think one of the things that's changed for me about the way that I eat is that I am thinking about my gut microbiota when I eat now. And so sometimes I'll be like, all right, I'm just gonna, you know, I love mindless eating, like, people say they don't love yes. not to do it. But like, I like to just eat and <laughs> constantly be yes. putting something in my mouth. So like, sometimes I will put a plate of carrot sticks and celery next to my cucumber or my, my cucumber, <laughs> my computer when I'm working, because I just want to mindlessly eat. But before I would have done that differently. And it's, you know, I'm really, really sensitive about saying like, Oh, it sounds so like healthy and problematic to be talking about things like that. And like, I definitely have an issue with the wellness industrial complex, but the reality is, is like, I have changed how I eat in the sense that I am thinking all the time about how to get more whole plant food sources into my way of eating and living with my parents meant that like, there was sort of a checks and balances of like, does my dad find this delicious, you know, and making sure that there was that when someone, whoever that was, looked at what I put on the plate, that that would read to them as like hearty and satisfying and taste great and not just be this sort of like, how can you get as many vegetables <laughs> into your day yeah. as possible? Um, so yeah, and so that that was the experience of developing the recipes was interesting because like healthy-ish for me was all about the way, like I said, the way that I have gotten myself to eat healthful foods was by balancing them with, you know, butter and cheese and things like that. Um, and this is a little bit one, one step further in the direction of healthfulness in terms of trying to get as many whole food plant sources in as possible. It's not to say you have to do it all the time. Like it's about just trending directionally towards that way of eating. And it doesn't have to be every day. It's like about an overall just sort of life shift towards more whole food plant sources. Um, but 
it was really hard, by the way, <laughs> to cut yeah. out, you know, you can't just add butter at the end or you can't just, you know, there, there aren't the same shortcut ingredients I was trying to develop with as little added sugar as possible. It was, and I rely on medjool dates very heavily. I cannot recommend keeping those stocked at all times. Um, I always have a big bag of these dates from Rancho Meladuco, which is a farm out of California. They're really wonderful. And it, it was very difficult to develop the recipes the way I was just saying that benefits your health and that also looks and tastes delicious to a wide variety of people. So what were your kind of like, I don't want it to be like, like your tips or your hacks for making fake things. That's not what it's about, but what, what have been kind of like those godsend, um, either recipes or ingredient swaps that have made the process easier. So the thing that I would say, and this is something that like I had to become comfortable with is that sometimes time is the thing that makes the difference when you're eating healthful food. Um, time. And I would say sometimes a few more pots and pans, which, you know, like I had to become comfortable with, there's a pie in the book that has sweet potato and carrots and squash, and it's so delicious, but it is a little bit more work than what I had been comfortable with as a recipe developer doing previously. Um, and it takes time to set and chill because there's no added sugar in that recipe. But to Mm. me, it's worth it because like dessert is a way it's like a a philosophy of living for me. Yes, it is. my everything. (laughs) I could give up everything but sugar. Totally. And like, you know, I, I think it's, I do, do, the science does show that reducing added sugar as much as possible is important, but like, that doesn't mean that you can never eat sugar. I think these like sort of black and white statements that have become really popular in the wellness industry, like must be challenged. Um, no one thing is inherently good or bad and no one meal is inherently good or bad. It's, you know, we're talking about an overall trend of a way of eating. Um, so yeah, so a few more pots and pans. And then, like I said, time, you know, sometimes things just need to cook longer so that you can get to caramelization or things can gel um, and stick together. Like I'm talking quite literally when I say gel and stick together. Um, Yeah. I was really shocked, but that, that is the thing that surprised me because all that's on the plate are the ingredients for the most part. I love that. I mean, I think the, just going through and looking at the recipes, it really does just look like a, a cookbook. In the, in the sense of like, I think the, your concept about like the, the wellness industrial complex and there's this, there's been this kind of history of a divide between thinking about how you're eating and cooking, but just having it be part of your lifestyle versus having it be an intention that you are setting um, around a diet, um, which I think has always been kind of just harmful and, and something like this has been lacking. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I think I have to say, like, I really live by the book now. And that's the thing when you've been asking about the process, which I love because process, you know, that is the, the thing that changed for me was, I knew it theoretically going into the book, but it was really difficult for me to stick to. Like, like I said, like I'm fundamentally someone who doesn't want to eat healthfully and I'm also a lazy cook. (laughs) And, um, I think those challenges are what make the book usable and what makes it, what makes it realistic is that once I actually did this, I, you know, I don't have joint pain anymore. Like, and sometimes by the way, when I'm like eating tons of sugar, like I do because like food is the way I cope with stress. It's just the reality. Um, and I start itching really badly or I do start having joint pain or I have heartburn again. Like these things are, I'm always going to be on the precipice of those things. And just to be fully frank. And then I remember like, okay, you wrote a book about this. You know what to do. Just like steam some kale and like put some eggs on that and put the kimchi dressing on top. And like, you know, after a couple of days of that, I do genuinely feel better. And I feel like nervous to be someone who's like, and kale, you know, because like another thing that's had a bit of a backlash is kale. But the reality is, is like a variety of leafy greens is something that does change the modality of how I feel. 
individually. I can't speak for everyone, but I do think that some people might feel when they're eating in a more sort of like plant focused way, which is the term I like to use for this way of eating that, um, that they feel better. I mean, I think that's, and hopefully I do believe that this should be like the future of how we talk about food and wellness. And I think there is, we were talking about this right before we started recording in in the sense of, of that idea around, um, quarantine in the very beginning, including myself. I remember I was making pasta pretty much every other night. Uh, I made like cookie doughs and cakes and like we ordered because, I mean, we ordered uh, like, we were going through about eight to 10 pints of Jenny's ice cream a week. Easy. But yep. and not Easy. To, and it, this was, this was with my, my husband, my sister and her and her husband. So it was four people. So it wasn't as bad as it could have been, but still that's a lot. Um, and I think now we've definitely gotten to this point um, in which people have already gone through that initial process of like getting more comfortable with cooking for themselves, three meals a day, um, and past that, like, what is the concept of nourishment? How are you going to find pleasure in cooking and how are you going to find that balance between like the food that you're putting into your body and how it makes you feel? So I think this is pretty much like the perfect time that people, including myself, have been like focused around what they're eating. I mean, I, I, I talk so. about that. I mean, that happens all the, it, the conversation comes up all the time, especially in this idea about like restricting versus just understanding. Um, one thing you talk about in the book is like restricting alcohol. Um, and I've been, I always say like, like the New York mag article that I'm Cali sober. Um, but <laughs> I, I like, I, I don't drink and that's it. And it happens. It, it was the best part about quarantine is like, there are no situations in which that has to be pushed on me, but it doesn't mean that a, I will never drink. If I will have a drink, I always say like, I have a drink. I have a few cocktails once a quarter and that's enough for me. And that's what my body prefers. Yeah. And it's so important. I think like literally what you just said, that's what my body prefers. That is the answer. And I think that when, you know, I think it's, I'm really excited about this way. I hope people enjoy, it's really worked for me about listening to my body by trying these different things and seeing how I feel. I never used to pay attention to my body. I was so cut off from my body. Um, you know, for more reasons just than food. And when I started to really watch how much I drink, when I started to think about eating less added sugar, when I started to eat in this plant-focused way, I learned to feel what my body feels. And in addition to the fact that like alcohol has, can have negative consequences for health in large quantities, um, that's not to say that occasional drinking is a problem. But what I really notice is in addition, it's like my mental health is better when I don't drink as much. And I write every single morning for a couple hours. And the reality is, is like, if I have a headache or I'm hungover, I can't write. And so I think it's not saying that, again, I come back to this thing, there's no one size fits all. But what happens when one eats in this way where you start to notice the way you feel it makes it much easier to make those decisions in favor of healthfulness. I, you know, I wonder how people will feel after this book. Maybe people will be like, I've never felt worse. And that's totally <laughs> possible too. Uh, well, I, I think I don't, I do not think that will be the case, but this brings us to our final portion of the podcast, the lightning round. I'm just going to throw a few questions at you and we, shall see what you think all right so the first is um who's killing it on the gram who's someone you love to follow on social media can be food person can be non-food person oh i'm gonna give a shout out to eric kim yes i love love his instagram i love his meals yes this timothy chalamet um meals if he were his wife are my favorite and um so yeah i really enjoy his posts Love it. Um, when was the last time you were completely floored by a recipe you developed on the first go? First go? I don't know if that's ever happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> or, or just one that 
that when you got it, you're like, wow, this is going to be like, people are going to love this. Yeah. Okay. I really love the pistachio butter thumbprints with raspberry chia filling that are in the book. A little bit of a long title. Um, but they're so gorgeous. Thanks. And you know, those were what they have a little bit of sugar in them. Like I said, there's nothing inherently wrong with sugar, but it's a little bit less than normal. And what I like is that they're like packed with fiber and, um, the chia seeds that are in the jam, they sort of mimic the raspberry seeds. So you don't really notice that crunchiness and you know, they're pretty, they're party worthy. And like I said, packed with whole plant foods. Amazing. Um, I think this could be, I think the answer is pretty obvious around the, the subject of the book, but what are some things in the food space right now that are really exciting you? Could be anything from an ingredient, a technique, a broader idea? I think, you know, I'm in Jackson, Wyoming, so it's a little bit different out here, but what I see from social media since now that people are in, you know, some sort of version of quarantine or the other are restaurants starting to make their ingredients and small types of sort of larder type things available for people at home. So I've noticed a lot of like really creative fermented foods or sauces or things like that. And that's something I feel really passionately about that changes healthful eating is when you have these like flavor boosters that are available in your fridge, which, which restaurants do such an amazing job of. I think if people can have those at home and just like simply add those to a, you know, steamed vegetables and whole grains and things like that, it makes healthful eating much more viable. So I'm envious of people in LA and San Francisco and New York and things like that, where they're getting those from restaurants. I love that. That's actually that funny enough. That was something that was such an important part of, um, I'll never forget, like, when I started quarantine, like, the thing that I made as, like, my weekly reminder for, for like, some joy uh, was I started getting deliveries from Norwich Meadow Farms uh, from the Union oh, Square yeah. Green Market. And I was very much, I mean, I'm, everyone's in a fragile state. So, like, I just put in for the grab bag, like, the, the largest CSA box. And it came with, like, it, it, at this size, it came with, like, fruits, vegetables, but also, like, salad dressings or a random sauce or uh i don't know like one week it was kimchi like things like that and and those were the, the items that i used the most Absolutely. and it's become like the my favorite way to cook is just make a big batch of some kind of sauce or something to keep in the fridge and then you, you kind of change up the meal every day totally and like you mentioned getting a delivery you know csa or any of these farm shares I mentioned earlier that one of the most viable ways to that are, is correlated with good health overall is a variety of whole plant foods. And so what's so great about a CSA is they make it easier for you. You're, you're just inherently going to mix up the types of plants you're eating because they are delivering to you what's in season and that's going to alternate over the year. I love it. Um, and lastly, we play a game of fuck, marry, kill every episode um, with items kind of curated to the guest so for yours i picked up some of the the i would get like the, the standout items that um come up in terms of gut health and your recipes so your, your choices are sprouted grains pickled vegetables or cauliflower anything <laughs> okay so fuck mary kill so kill let's go backwards i guess um, I guess I would kill pickled vegetables. It's not a very popular <laughs> opinion. <laughs> and then I would marry cauliflower anything. Gotcha. And I guess I would fuck sprouted grains. If you yeah, say I guess so. I would. All I right, guess I would. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, Thank you so much. This was such an awesome conversation. I Thank love you. that we were able to like span kind of a combo of both like your career in food and the process of this book, which I'm super excited to get a physical copy. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was really fun.
Awesome. Thank you all so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is the Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at thefeedfeed and myself at Jake Cohen. And be sure to follow Lindsay over at Lindsay Maitland, correct? That's your handle? Yes, Lindsay Maitland. Amazing. Be sure to pick up her brand new book, um, Help Yourself. And I can like... I cannot wait to like gift it to everyone that I know who has, who needs it. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. We will see you all next time. The feed feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.